In Houston, Texas, Ward Vessel and Exchanger Corporation operates a plant that utilizes a plate rolling machine. The machine uses a series of three rollers to turn large metal plates into cylinders. During the night shift, two employees began the process of cleaning the machine, but the rollers would not lower. They called their supervisor, who began the process of troubleshooting the machine. However, while the supervisor was re-engaging the machine, one of the employees was still cleaning it, and his fingers were pinched and later amputated. OSHA investigated the issue and issued three citations under the lockout-tagout standard and one citation under the reporting and record-keeping standard. The company timely contested, and the case was sent to an administrative law judge. We will discuss the facts of this case, the judge's ruling, and what it means for the employer community on this, the January 24, 2024 edition of the OSHA 3030. Well, welcome everyone to the OSHA 3030. I'm Manish Rack. I'm an attorney at Keller and Heckman here in Washington, D.C., and I'm joined today by Taylor Johnson, another one of our occupational safety and health attorneys at Keller and Heckman here in our Washington, D.C. office. Taylor, thank you for setting up the case that really goes to one of the exceptions and the application of the scope of applicability of the lockout-tagout standard. I think it's an incredibly fascinating set of facts, and I think that the judge's very nuanced analysis of this make it one of the most important cases in the story, the long evolving story of enforcement of the lockout tagout standard. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I'm looking forward to going through this one and happy to be here with you as always. Well, um, as am I. And so why don't we talk about uh, what we're going to talk about today? Sure. So we're going to go through the facts of this case. There's a lot of interesting facts here, as Manish alluded to. The case is Ward Vessel and Exchanger Corporation versus the Secretary of Labor. We'll go through OSHA's citation and their arguments as to why you know their citation was valid in this case. We'll go through Ward, uh, the employer's contesting of the citation and their counter arguments as to why they think the citation should be vacated. We'll go into the lockout-tagout standard and just give sort of a general overview of that um, being the main standard that we'll discuss today on the program. We'll get into the ALJ's decision. We'll go through why the ALJ you know, ruled the way he did in this case. And then as always, we'll wrap up with what employers should do as uh, so some practical takeaway action items for you to bring back to your workplace. Right, Taylor. And, and as you in the OSHA 3030 community are listening, consider this as the overarching feature of the debate between OSHA and Ward and the debate that had to be resolved by the administrative law judge. It is, to me, essentially this. It is not a question of whether or not Ward did or did not violate the requirements of the lockout-tagout standard as much as it is, did the lockout-tagout standard apply to the particular operations that were going on at the time that the injury occurred? So, let's sum it up. Absolutely. So why don't we get into the facts? Just to start off with, this storyline occurs, as you say, Taylor, during the night shift, an employee was cleaning the the rollers on a plate rolling machine and prepping it for the next day's work. Now, this is a machine that processes sheet metal into rolled metal, can turn it into cylinders or tubes or tanks, starting with sheet metal. These are rolls or cylinders of very large dimensions and very heavy-duty industrial applications. They can be used as tanks 
or as towers, any any number of applications. And so when you're dealing with stainless steel, one of the preparatory steps the night before would be to clean the rollers because any amount of debris, particularly rust, that might have accumulated on the rollers would transfer onto the stainless steel and that renders the product not useful. So the night before, they have to clean down the rollers. They use acetone and they they have to then protect the rollers now cleaned in a plastic wrap. And that requires that the rollers roll so that you can apply acetone to every part of the diameter of the, the rollers. And as well, the rollers need to be rolling when wrapping them in, in plastic. So that means that the, the machine needs to be energized. Right, exactly. So that's what was going on at the time of the incident. Right, that's what was going on. Um, the employee was, was cleaning the machine, as you described. While this was happening, though, sort of before the employee could even get to that stage, the rollers wouldn't lower. And so what happened is that he called his supervisor over who activated the machine. So the the supervisor was troubleshooting the machine while, unfortunately, the employee is cleaning it. The machine was activated during the troubleshooting process, and the employee got the tips of his fingers pinched in the machine, was brought to the emergency room, treated, and then sent home the following morning. Uh, Another key fact here is, is sort of when you know, Ward, the employer, learned about the fact that there was an, actually an amputation in this case with respect to the employee. Right. So they also cited them for failure to report an amputation within 24 hours of the amputation. Right. That's right. So the way this machine is set up, it has three rollers, one up above and two down below that are in the same plane as each other. And the one up above is fixed. The two below can be raised or lowered in order to engage the material being uh, upon which the work is being performed. And in order to clean and prep the rollers, the lower rollers also have to be lowered. Indeed, they have to be lowered to their lowest setting. Right. Yeah. And two other key facts here just about the cleaning process is this eight-inch gap uh, between the two bottom rollers and the top roller That's that comes into play in the ALJ's analysis. That's when it's lowered to its maximum lowest setting. And that, right. that facilitates a worker performing this cleaning and and wrapping operation. Right, exactly. And then the other is that the machine cannot be unplugged to perform this cleaning. So it actually- Because the rollers have to roll. Right, exactly. They've got to roll um, to a snail's pace as described by Ward in this case. Right, and that constitutes about one to three rotations per minute. One to three RPMs or revolutions per minute. Again, I I would agree that is a snail's pace. It's a very slow rotation. Yep. So this is what's going on. The, The one employee who was supposed to be wiping down the rollers with acetone, leaves the machine to go get some acetone. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the lower rolls are not lowering effectively, properly. So the supervisor starts to engage in a troubleshooting right. sequence of tasks. Right. He's turning breakers on, turning them, you know, turning them off, unplugging, plugging back, you know, all the mm-hmm. sorts of troubleshooting things just to get those rollers to lower so that the cleaning process can begin you know, properly. That's right, Taylor. What he finally finds out is he believes that the extension cord being used was was may have been the problem and so he eliminates that from the sequence and plugs the machine directly in at which point he hears a loud scream on the other side of the machine right and that was the employee unfortunately who began cleaning before the troubleshooting process ended the employee goes to get the acetone comes back and just starts cleaning the machine and and at that point his fingers are caught in there and so it's really that sort of I think this is Ward's argument, sort of the employee conduct, you know, the failure to make sure that the troubleshooting process had ended before he started cleaning. And then the supervisor's failure to also clear that area before engaging and re-energizing the machine are two of Ward's arguments in this case. 
Yeah. And so OSHA seizes upon this and says, the OSHA compliance officer, well, they, they come in as, as soon as Ward self-reports uh, an amputation. And, and they self-report the amputation three days later because that's the day the hospital report comes in, identifying it as a, an amputation. The employee had the very tips of his fingers pinched and they burst open. And the supervisor was the one who actually took him to the hospital and said, yeah, I think you're going to need to get stitches. It qualifies as an amputation because the very tip of his finger was removed without any loss of any bone material or any digits or the, the entirety of the finger. So it was only when the doctor's report came in identifying it as an amputation that immediately Ward reported this to OSHA as an amputation. And then they, the Occupational Safety and Health Compliance Officer comes in and performs an inspection. Right. So comes to the work site in Houston, Texas, performs an inspection, ends up issuing three citations under the lockout tagout standard, and then one citation um, for failure to meet the requirements of the recording and record keeping standard, like you said, Mashian, to, to timely report that amputation. Right. And there's actually a theft that they later withdrew themselves. Right. So now we're looking at essentially an allegation under the lockout tagout standard that this was constituted a failure to isolate the energy. Not only the electrical power that was unplugged and then plugged back in, and then according to OSHA, they alleged should have been locked out, but also also they they alleged that because there was hydraulic lift systems as part of the machinery, it would have lowered and raised the lower rollers, mm -hmm. that that was a secondary source of energy, and they alleged that that should have been locked out as well. Right. That's interesting because when when later put on the stand, they were asked, the compliance officer was asked, well, how does that hydraulic energy work? And the compliance officer says, well, I don't really know, but there's hydraulic energy in there, so that has to be locked out. Indeed, the testimony by the persons who did know how it worked stated that there's no stored energy in the hydraulic lifts. Right. There was no, no pressure against it in the negative, and there was no stored energy right. of any other kind. So they, they allege that now you're really only looking at a single energy source, which is the plug, and it's a single plug that plugs in, and that's the only source of energy. The hydraulics don't really count as stored energy. So they conduct this investigation. They allege a failure under the lockout-tagout standard. And they also allege, as you point out, Taylor, this failure to self-report within 24 hours and amputation. Mm -hmm. And so let's get to Ward's arguments in this case. I thought that Ward did a fantastic job in this case, you know, sort of coming up with these arguments. But so the first one is that, you know, just as a baseline, that the lockout-tagout standard doesn't apply to single source cord and plug machines in the aspect of maintenance. If you're performing maintenance, there's an exception in the standard for these these single source cord and plug machines. Basically, you know, you can unplug the machine and that can effectively, you know, de-energize it. So that's one of the arguments. Provided, so the, and that, that's Ward's argument, but that later uh, turns out to be sort of not a player on the field at the time of play. Right. But it's important to also point out that this narrow exception occurs when the plug itself is always under the exclusive control of the person performing the work. Right. And that it applies to servicing and maintenance. And right. so it becomes an open question here in this case as to whether that was the task being performed, servicing and maintenance. Right. Right. So they throw that one out there. They then get to the next one, which is at no stored potential energy uh, to create a pinch point. So this is, gets to the hydraulics that you're talking about, Manish. They basically say that there's you know no potential for unexpected release when the machine is not being operated because there's no pressure on the hydraulics at that point. So they sort of get into that argument that OSHA put forth about the, you know, the stored energy being in the, in the machine and, you know, made a good counterpoint, I thought. Right. And they were the only ones who testified on the question of whether or not there was any stored energy yeah. in the hydraulic system. Right. So then 
Then they alleged that when the employee was engaged in cleaning, that this constituted a violation because this was, according to OSHA, uh, a maintenance task. So let's talk about how the administrative law judge analyzed this. As we've talked about many times, Taylor, here on the OSHA 3030, anytime the Occupational Safety and Health Administration wishes to establish an allegation of a violation, they have to first establish that there was a standard that was violated. They have to, before that, as a prerequisite, establish that the standard even applies to the operation or task or, or circumstance or condition, and then that it was violated. And then they have to establish that there was employee exposure to a allegedly violative condition. And then finally, they have to establish that the employer had knowledge of, of several things, really. Mm-hmm. Knowledge that there was employee exposure, knowledge of a violated condition. And so, so unless the agency can establish all four of these elements, we call them prima facie elements, they, they failed to establish a violation. An OSHA violation. Yeah, I thought that was what was really interesting about this case is that, you know, usually when we go through these cases, we spend a lot of time talking about the last two of these four. You know, what what was the employee exposed and was their knowledge, especially knowledge. We've done a, a bunch of cases about that. But in this instance, it's really the first two that we spend a lot of time here on. You know, does the standard even apply? Does the lockout mm-hmm. tagout standard even apply to this machine? And, and then was it violated or was there an exception? So I'm sort of a reverse of the, the typical uh, you know cases that we've been going through lately. Well, I think that's right. It's interesting that in the OSHA 3030 cases that we cover, we often pick cases that go to the question of whether there's employer knowledge. In our cases, when we, on behalf of employers, contest citations all around the country in federal and state plan state actions against employers, we often find that the most important question is this threshold question. Does the standard even apply? Have they cited a standard that doesn't apply to the to the task being performed. So I applaud my good friend who who had handled this case in Dallas, Texas. It was a Houston trial that that he he raised this question and yeah. uh, challenged the OSHA citation on the basis of whether the standard even applies. I think that was well done on his part. Absolutely. So now the administrative law judge is using that as his roadmap to evaluate well, whether the citation was properly issued and comes to, to several interesting findings. First, I think as a question of whether or not the standard applies, the standard only applies to servicing and maintenance of machines. It does not apply to the regular operating of the machine. Right, right. Normal production operations are not covered. And so it applies to the to those servicing and maintenance. And But then also um, it, where, when unexpected energization or release of stored energy could cause injury to the employees. And, and this is sort of the real crux of, you know, contesting lockout tagout standard, you know, citations. And in this case, you see this, you know, could could it actually cause injury? Essentially, was there exposure? You know, exposure is really one of the critical elements here. Well, there's really two or three things there, Taylor. And the other one that's important to point out is the unexpected part. Right. Uh, the the agency has to establish that the energization or reenergization was an unexpected reenergization, and that it was a energization that constitutes a release of stored energy that, as you say, had exposure potential exposure and the potential for injury to employees. So there's a lot going on in that that one threshold question. And then, as I said before, it doesn't, the standard, the lockout tagout standard does not apply to normal production operations. It only applies to servicing maintenance and not normal production operations. So, so normal production operations really require a different kind of safe operating procedure by the employer mm-hmm. that isn't covered under lockout tagout. Right. And then, as you pointed out, there's this exception for cord and plug 
equipment that has a single source of energy, just the cord and plug, right? And that the plug is in the under the exclusive control of the person who who's doing the work. You know. Yeah, yeah. All right. So let's talk about the administrative law judge's analysis. Yeah. So the administrative law judge breaks his analysis of the case into these three, you know, distinct tasks. So and those being maintenance of the machine, the cleaning of the machine. And, and troubleshooting of the of the machine. Mosh, I think we can kind of, you know, cast aside maintenance here in this case, you know, not really applicable, but if he, he sort of sets up a straw man, you know, but if it was here, the cord and plug exception would apply. But I think, you know, cleaning and troubleshooting are really the real, you know, heart of this case. That's right. The, the task being performed at the time that the employee was injured was on one hand by the supervisor, it was troubleshooting why the rollers weren't lowering and trying to figure out what what to do to get it back into engagement. The task being performed on the other side of the machine by the employee who got injured was prepping the machine for the following day's activities. Right. And so with respect to cleaning, the administrative law judge finds that OSHA failed to prove exposure to the hazard. So essentially, when we when we went back, you know, when we started looking at the cleaning process and we, we broke that down for this machine, we noted sort of the the gap between the rollers. The first step in the cleaning process to be to sort of drop the bottom rollers to remove that pinch point. And so the administrative law judge says with respect to cleaning, the lockout tagout system does not need to be applied to this machine because there's no potential for an employee to be injured while cleaning because of the gaps between the rollers. I agree, Taylor, with a little bit of circumspection, the the administrative law judge is finding in this point. Mm-hmm. And I think that OSHA, OSHA's rejoinder was, well, of course, there must be exposure as evidenced, OSHA argues, of the fact that he indeed got injured. Right. And- the administrative law judge's point was, if done properly, the procedure for cleaning does not result in exposure. And I think he also pointed out that this preparatory phase does not qualify as maintenance or servicing. It is a an operational task that requires the machine to be energized. And if it requires the machine to be energized, the judge found that the lockout tagout standard doesn't apply at all. That, that's exactly right. The, ju- the judge says those exact words, you know, an occurrence of an injury on its own does not establish a lockout tagout violation. Now, he says that with respect to both cleaning and troubleshooting. And then with, with respect to troubleshooting, the ALJ says, you know, the machine cannot be locked out during the troubleshooting process. Yeah, but de-energized. Exactly. And then the de-energization source locked out. That's right. Right. It needed to be energized and then you need to engage in your troubleshooting while the system is live in order to understand whether it's working or not or what works and what doesn't. Right. And that this, you know, this company policy, which required the supervisor to clear the area surrounding the machine was in place. Again, it's just that the the supervisor didn't follow it. Just like, you know, the employee cleaning the machine was not supposed to clean the machine until there was that gap between the rollers. So in in each instance, there was a clear cut, you know, company policy on what to do and, and the employee and the supervisor respectively just didn't follow them. But the LJ says that, you know, just because an injury occurred because of that lack of, of adherence, you know, doesn't mean that a lockout tagout system needs to apply to, to this machine. So if you take a look at the two tasks, the cleaning is, is not, first of all, maintenance or servicing, it's preparatory for the step the following day. And you would say that it has to be energized during that process. The same goes for troubleshooting it has to be energized during the process. The administrative law judge concluded that the lockout tagout standard doesn't even apply to these tasks, and consequently, the administrative law judge vacated those citations. Right. He also noted that the failure on the part of the compliance officer to explain this allegedly second source of energy, the hydraulics, 
and how it served as an additional source of hazardous energy constituted a failure to establish one of the prima facie elements that we talked about just a moment ago, this idea of exposure or uh, the existence of a hazard. And indeed, the only testimony on the subject was from ward employees who stated that there's no stored energy in the hydraulics. There's no, therefore, second source of energy. And the only source of energy was the plug connecting to the electrical grid. So this, this failure to explain this allegation of a second source of energy constituted a failure that, given that the other tasks were tasks that didn't qualify under the Lockout-Tagout standard, scope of coverage, uh, resulted in the administrative law judge coming to the conclusion that he had to vacate all of the citations. Then, then there's this last question of whether they reported on time this amputation. Their argument was, well, we, we don't have to do this within 24 hours of an amputation event if we don't know that it's amputation. The moment that we know that there's an amputation, that triggers the, the starting of the clock. And we didn't know that until we got the doctor's report. The judge agreed and said that without that knowledge that you're looking at an amputation, you don't have really a uh, duty triggered under that 24-hour self-reporting requirement. And although the supervisor, there was evidence in the case that the supervisor had said things like, it looks like you, you lost the tip of your finger, that that wasn't the same as the knowledge from a medical professional coming from a medical professional who, who had conclusively stated that that loss of the tip of the finger qualified as an amputation. Right. And that indeed, when, when the ward supervisor did receive that information from the medical professional, he did indeed self-report to OSHA within 24 hours of that moment. So, not, and I've, I've had to make this argument myself in the past, also in Texas, that the duty to uh, notify doesn't trigger simply because of the event. It, there has to be knowledge of the event or knowledge of the outcome of the event, the amputation, before the duty to self-report is triggered and that, that this 24-hour clock may actually be two, three, four, or even five days after the incident itself. I think that this is one that has been poorly litigated or poorly decided upon. The decisional laws is not strong out there. And so it remains to be seen whether or not this uh, knowledge comes based on maybe an active effort to try and obtain the knowledge. But in this case, the supervisor reported that he did keep calling to try and find out how, how the employee was. And it was only three days later that he got that conclusive information back. Right. So Taylor, let's wrap this up. What do you think employers should do in light of what I think is an incredibly important case in the field of lockout tagout? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that jumped out to me was these clear work rules that Ward had for each, you know, aspect of the process involved with, with this production. So, you know, there was maintenance, there was cleaning, and there was troubleshooting. They had clear work rules around all three of those, which, you know, called for things like clearing the area before troubleshooting, called for, you know, waiting for a gap to occur between the rollers before engaging in cleaning. I think that those really, you know, helped the employer here when they were making these arguments. It also helped break down the difference between those three processes for the judge. I think he was able to look at three clear work rules and, and you see the ALJ actually you know, break those down, ABC, in his analysis of whether or not lockout-tagout should apply. Yeah. And I think the other thing that uh, when you when you forget about what compliance looks like or not compliance and just go to the what's really the most important, and that's the safety of the workforce, I think that it's important to consider that these two steps or two tasks that were being performed should have been separated out in time, that the troubleshooting should have been done according to the towards own standard operating procedures, which meant it should have cleared the area and secured the machine. And then the cleaning of the rollers and prep for the following day 
should have been done according to their standard operating procedures. And the fact that two workers were doing both at the same time right. is what led to an injury. And so you really need to separate these out, space them out, and clear the area so that this kind of unfortunate accident doesn't happen again. Absolutely. And another one is to challenge lockout tagout citations on actual exposure. So you see OSHA, you know, that kind of try to use this argument in this case that, you know, just because an injury occurred, therefore you must have exposure or else someone wouldn't be injured. And I thought it was smart to push back. Right. We're really asking, does the scope of the lockout tagout standard even apply to the tasks that are being performed here? And I'm, I'm glad that the administrative law judge came to the right conclusion that it doesn't, it couldn't, because those tasks require the machine to be running at the time. So it's not a lockout tagout event. Yep. Finally, Taylor, I think that it's important to talk about the inspection itself when the compliance officer is there. Yeah. So it didn't come up in this case, but Manish, we've seen this a lot in a lot of the lockout tagout cases that, that we do across the country. And that's to avoid demonstrations or hypotheticals, especially if you're not the person who typically operates the machine on a day-to-day basis. A lot of times OSHA inspector will come in and and ask for, you know, show me, for instance, how you would do this or that. And, and I think it's important to, to, to not do that and, and to make sure that, especially if you're not the person who typically operates the machine, that it's fine to just say that and that you could actually end up creating in what you think is a demonstration or a hypothetical, you know, you could end up checking some of those boxes of, of, of that OSHA will need to make to make its case. These are often entrapment questions when somebody asks, how would you perform the following task? And can you demonstrate that for me? And an employee, a supervisor or a non-supervisorial employee performs that task without going through the steps of lockout tagout, they could lead the compliance officer to the belief that that is worthy of a citation. And I don't agree, but that may be the misbelief of the compliance officer. But the question was loaded. It should have been, how would you safely perform this? Or how would you perform lockout tagout? when performing this task, because that's really what the compliance officer would like to know. So why don't they ask it that way? Yep. They don't. And that's the unfair part of the loaded question. And therefore, your advice, I think, is sound, Taylor, that non-supervisory or supervisor employees should not perform hypothetical demonstrations or answer hypothetical questions. Every moment of work is unique. And thus, there's no one demonstrative or answer to a hypothetical question that would apply to actual real life work, I don't believe. Plus the, the flaw to the evidence that the, the quality of the evidence that the uh, compliance officer is receiving is rooted or embedded in the flaw of how the question was phrased. Mm-hmm. And so, so I think those are all problematic parts of an inspection that everyone here on the OSHA 3030 community should take heed to consider very carefully when a compliance officer is with you. Okay. Well, that's that's the OSHA 3030, Taylor. I think it was a great topic, an important topic. And I think that that's, if there are any questions, by all means, if uh, any members of the OSHA 3030 community have any questions, this is pre-recorded, so we won't be able to do the live after session, but we, we would welcome emails, texts, or phone calls Always. from members of our community. We love chatting about this stuff. If it's a simple black letter law answer that we can give you off the top of our head, we'll, we'd love to chat about this stuff and, and take time out of our day to, to, to chat with you. So feel free to keep those questions coming. This episode will be posted on our website, khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030, along with all of the episodes that we've done over the past, uh, how long has it been now? 11 years. We're working on our 12th year now. They're in 2024. And we also repost this as a podcast. So please subscribe to the podcast so it automatically drops into your podcast app. It will also be posted on YouTube. The video and the slides together with the audio will be posted on YouTube and housed on our website. So when you click on the link, 
on our website, khlaw.com. It'll post you through to the full video. Our next episode will be on February 28th at 1 p.m. Eastern, always on a Wednesday, always at 1 p.m. Eastern, even if, as is the case here, we have to pre-record to maintain that consistency. And don't forget our sister programs. If your organization is responsible for compliance with the REACH or TSCA regulatory schema, then please tune in to our sister programs, the REACH 3030 and the TSCA 3030. Those are going to be scheduled for February 7th and February 14th. February 7th for the REACH 3030, 10 a.m. Eastern. February 14th for the TSCA 3030 at 1 p.m. Eastern. Those are broadcasts worldwide. And so please make sure you pass the word on about the OSHA 3030 as well as these two programs to people within your organization and your colleagues at other organizations to help spread the good word about these programs. Taylor, thank you very much for joining this month's episode of the OSHA 3030. I'd like to thank all of the staff here at Cohen Heckman as well for helping put this program on. And I think we owe thanks to all of the members of the listening community who keep tuning in year after year for many, many years and for responding to our request to forward the invitation on to at least three other people every time within your organization and other organizations so that we can continue to make sure that there's viability to the program for maybe another 12 years into the future. With that said, thank you all very much for participating in this month's Social 3030. Until we see you next month, stay safe. Stay safe.